0: We look forward to the greater things that you will do in this city. Father, we desire, I hope, above all things, that you be glorified through our lives and what we think and what we do and what we say. And Lord, we come to you as needy people. Prepare us to become kingdom people. And Lord, teach us how to pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Take a seat if you would. Get your Bibles out. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. If your if you're children, feel free to adios and pick up the trash too you, while you're going out. So it'll be nice. Brian would really like that, right? Yes. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. Forgive us our debts. I was having uh, breakfast yesterday with Reeves Ronsner, and we were talking, and, and he watched us online, and he said that the um, series on prayer is getting more views than the, the previous series, which was, I can't remember what it was, but he knows that it was... Uh, more views on prayer, he says, because people, he thinks, just need to learn how to pray and want to learn how to pray. Um, prayer is a lifelong exercise and a great way to really get to know God in an intimate and personal way. I want to begin this morning talking about our radical need. Um, do you remember last week, I think it was, we put up a picture of the soul, remember that? We have the the spirit or the will and the the mind and the the body and so on. Did you know that it's the nature of the soul to uh, need? That our souls are very, very needy. That's why Thomas Aquinas uh, wrote that this neediness of the soul is a pointer to God. Blaise Pascal said this, you've heard me say this before, but that there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man and woman which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we try to fill that need, that desire with anything other than God, right? If you think about it, we as, as fallen creatures are limited in virtually every way in intelligence my wife would say that yeah i'm not the smartest person in the world in strength and energy in morality we are very very limited in every area of our lives but one we have unlimited desire we always want more right Howard Hughes certainly wanted more. All he ever wanted in his life was more. He wanted more money, so he parlayed inherited wealth into a billion-dollar pile of assets. He wanted more fame, so he broke into the Hollywood scene and soon became a filmmaker and star. He wanted more sensual pleasures, so he paid handsome sums to indulge his every sexual urge. He wanted more thrills, so he designed, built, and piloted the fastest aircraft in the world. He wanted more power, so he secretly dealt political favors so skillfully that two U.S. presidents became his pawns. You see, all he ever wanted was more. He was absolutely convinced that that would bring him true satisfaction. Unfortunately, history shows otherwise. He concluded his life emaciated, colorless, a sunken chest, fingernails in grotesque, inches-long corkscrews, rotting black teeth, tumors, innumerable needle marks from his drug addiction. Howard Hughes died believing the myth of more. He died a billionaire junkie, insane by all reasonable standards. That was taken from Bill Hybels in his book on leadership. We are limited in every way but in our desire for more. Now God created our souls that way because the soul's infinite capacity to desire, see, it's a mere image of God's infinite capacity to give. Our soul's problem, though, really, to be honest with you, it's not the fact that we are needy. It's the fact that we are fallen. And Satan took advantage of the soul's desire for more when he deceived Eve. Do you ever think about that? Listen to what he said to Eve. Genesis 3, 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God's holding down on you, There is more. Eve believed the lie that God was holding her back from more. She believed the lie that she could be like God. Now, our neediness, which was meant to point us to God, unfortunately pointed us away from God, to self, into sin. And it is that sin that separates us from God, ironically, whom we need the most. We are in a state of what I call radical corruption. And to understand the depth of our sin problem, I put these up for you. These are five words from the New Testament for sin. And you can see these as, you, as I'm going through this. But... We're going to talk about a very unpopular truth this morning. It's what is called radical corruption or total depravity. And God can't just define sin one way, and he defines it in five ways. You can see right there, we miss the mark, we step across the line, we're lawless, we trespass, means we slip or we fall, we are in debt to God. So I want to dust off this forgotten term for a moment, radical corruption or total depravity, because it means that the fall of man into sin at the Garden of Eden was so serious, and you must understand this, it affects the whole person. The fallenness that captures and grips our human nature affects our bodies. Hence, the reason why we become ill and we die. It affects our minds and our thinking Now, we still have the capacity to think, right? But the Bible said that the mind has become darkened and weakened. The will of man is no longer in its pristine state of moral power. The will, according to the New Testament, is now in bondage. We are enslaved to the evil impulses and desires of our hearts. So the body, the mind, the will, even the spirit, indeed, the whole person has been infected by the power of sin. Now I like using the term radical corruption because the term radical has to do with something that permeates to the core of a thing. See, it's not something that is simply superficial. The effects of the fall penetrate to the very core of our being and the recorded history of humanity testifies to this. In Genesis chapter 3, we just read the story, or briefly the story of the fall of man, when Adam and Eve sinned. A consequence of that sin, as you may recall, is that Adam and Eve, through them, would come two lines of humanity. A righteous line and an evil line. So we would say that The two first children that Adam and Eve have, Cain and Abel. Which was the righteous line, Cain or Abel? Abel, because Cain was a murderer. So we see from the very beginning, a righteous line and an evil line. So in Genesis chapter 4, we read the evil line of Cain. So get your Bibles out, go to Genesis chapter 4. I want to show you some stuff here this morning. Genesis chapter 4 all the way from the very beginning, right after the fall of man. Again, you see in Genesis chapter 4, the evil lineage of Cain. Notice that it is from this line of men that we find the first murder, we find hatred, And we find vengeance. Look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. This isn't even speaking of Cain. This is speaking of a gentleman by the name of Lamech. It says, Ada and Zillah, these are his wives, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech... Seventy-sevenfold. Okay. A little bit of humor here. Do you know what he's saying to his wives? Don't mess with me because I just killed a man and a boy, and I'm telling you that if you do anything to me, you'll get my vengeance 70 times seven. That sounds like a real nice guy. Quite a catch for these two ladies, right? Now notice why he's killing these men, or this man and this boy. The man wounded him, and the boy struck him. Now at the end of chapter 4, and in all of chapter 5 of Genesis, you'll see a contrast. We find the righteous line of Seth that ends with Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You see that in chapter 5, verse 32? By this time in human history... Man is so corrupted by sin that his heart is consumed by it. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. This is a staggering and extremely sobering verse. And it's sad. Staggering, sobering, and sad. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Listen to this. And that every... Intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. That's the corruption of man. That's the effect of sin. Now, let me remind you of this now, because you probably didn't think this through. Not only is the evil line of Cain and all his descendants corrupted in their core with sin, as we would expect, right? But also, who else's line is corrupt with sin? Seth and his descendants. And so what does God decide to do? I'm going to start over by wiping out all of corrupt humanity with the flood, except for who? Righteous Noah, it says, and his family. Noah, you'll look in the text, you read to this, he walked with God, but he is righteous Noah. And so he, he wipes everybody out except eight people. All considered righteous in the eyes of God. Noah and his family. Keep that in the back of your mind. Now here's the point. You would think that from the righteous line of men, because it all started with Adam and then it ended, now it's going to start over again with Noah. That from the righteous line of men that will now populate the earth, that men will follow God in his commands, right? I mean, after all, the righteous line would fill the earth. Look at Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 and 19. It says, Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Now I want you to think back, and put yourself as best you can in the, the position of Noah and his sons. Because fresh on their minds and certainly visible around them the moment they walked off the ark is the knowledge of the devastating impact of sin. I mean, for 40 days and 40 nights, Right? It rained, And in about a year, I think it was, that they were in the, the ark. Do you know what the estimate is that how many people were alive at that time? Anyone want to guess? About seven billion people because they were living longer. And so basically what we have today, all wiped out except eight. Where are all those bodies? Do they decay in a year? So there was probably that visible effect of sin in these bodies that were rotting that they could see, okay? And because there must have been plenty of evidence around them of death. But there was also hope because they walked into a new world with perhaps an eagerness that they could create some kind of paradise, right? Right? Maybe they could recover Eden, right? They could create a a new Eden on earth. Maybe there's a way that they could come out and create some kind of utopia. Wouldn't that be how we would think and hope? Because unlike us, they literally got a second chance. But it was not meant to be. Because if it were possible to restrain sin, They had every reason to do it. If it were possible to live a righteous life and have everybody live a righteous life, hopefully these people can do it, right? I mean, they had been declared by God righteous. They were spared judgment. And they were few in number, only eight. And they were all in the same family. I mean, surely they had a good shot at pulling this thing off. But here's the thing. One thing didn't drown in the flood, and that was sin. Sin was riding in the ark in the nature of those eight human beings. And so sin survived the flood in them. It was a new earth, but it was the same old humanity. And when they walked off the ark, sin walked off the ark. When they stepped into the new world, sin stepped into the new world with them. And sin rears its ugly head once again at the end of chapter 9. I want you to turn there with me. Genesis chapter 9, verse starting in verse 20. Here we find the sin of Noah. In this case, it's drunkenness. Now, again, Noah is considered by God to be righteous. In Noah, it says... Walked with God. He was a preacher of righteousness, Peter said. But the story we have right after the flood is the sin of Noah, his drunkenness. In his drunken state, it says, he loses his sense of shame, which results in him taking off his clothes and lying naked. Look at verse 20. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, and there's a reason why it says the father of Canaan, we'll go to that in a minute, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Now we're going to take a look at this this morning because there's things that we're going to learn that I think will be very Perhaps eye-opening to us. It was to me. As you know, or may know, sin begets sin. For Noah's sin, watch, you learn, is followed by the sin of Ham. Now, what was Ham's sin? Well, Ham saw his father's nakedness. Well, what's so bad about that, right? There's nothing wrong with that, right? But the word seen... The original use of that term implies, and this is going to be hard for some of us to hear this, that he gazed with some delight, not in a sexual sense. I mean, what does that mean? Here it is. It means that Ham took some measure of satisfaction in seeing his father stumble in sin. Apparently, there was a root of bitterness in Ham's heart. Maybe something happened in the ark. We don't know. What would it be like to live in a year in an ark with eight people and all those animals? I mean, who knows what happened? Something happened. There's some unresolved anger and resentment in his heart towards his father, Noah. Now, watch this. It manifests itself in a sick enjoyment watching his father fall under struggle with sin. Now, this, by the way, is the exact opposite of how love acts. Because what does love do? 1 Corinthians thirteen six, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It does not delight in evil, depending on your version of the Bible. And yet, this is what we find in Ham. Mind you, it's within his heart. So Ham held his father in disdain. He looked at him in contempt. He despised him. And he delighted in his father's shame. And he further now insults his father, watch this, when he went outside, and what did he do? He told his two brothers. That's the ugly sin of ridicule. So disdain, you see, exposes sin. But again, what does love do? Love does the opposite. It covers sin. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another because what? Love covers over a multitude of sins. So clearly, he didn't have a love for his father. And that meant that Ham clearly didn't honor his father. And of course, this would all be written down in the Ten Commandments, right? Love God, love men, honor your father and mother. Now I want you to hear me on this. Here we see the pattern of sin. You have some sort of conflict happen that leads to unresolved anger in the heart and it turns into a root of bitterness. And maybe even Ham didn't realize the degree that he was bitter towards his father. That he held resentment towards him. Which manifests itself in delighting in the suffering of the person whom you're in conflict with and then revealing that sin of that person to another. I asked you this morning, can you relate to this? I won't have you raise your hand because we all would have to raise our hands. I mean, have you ever been in an argument with a friend? This is a friend, mind you. It's not an enemy. Which, maybe it, it, the argument gets a little heated. Some things are said that are hurtful. And instead of acting in love and forgiveness, you hold on to that hurt. Maybe you even nurse that hurt a little bit. Then, when you hear that your friend is suffering say, through a divorce or maybe unemployment. And in that moment you hear the news, you find some enjoyment and delight in your friend's unfortunate circumstance. And you don't immediately verbalize it, right? But you feel it in your heart, and you probably think something like this, well, they got what they deserve. Or I'm not surprised by that. And then maybe a day later or two or three days later, you're talking to a mutual friend of you and this person you're in conflict with, and you share the news of your friend's embarrassing circumstance. That's what Ham did. Now look at the contrast of Ham and his brothers. Here we find a symbolic picture of love. Because out of respect and love for their father, they literally cover his nakedness with a blanket. See, in doing so, they honored their father. Now, I want you to keep in mind two things, folks. Ham was considered righteous. I mean, he was considered to be of the righteous line of Seth. He loved and worshiped God. By faith, he believed in a coming Messiah, who spared the judgment of the flood, And secondly, there was no evil world system tempting his sinful nature to sin, was there? It had been wiped out. It was just eight people, all righteous. I mean, God could have picked. I mean, it just... We have to ask ourselves a question, why does God include in Genesis this story of what seems like, quite frankly, a minor sin, right? I mean, did he murder anybody? Was he practicing homosexuality? Was he, did he commit adultery? Was he stealing anything? I mean, those are the big ones, right? Again, Everyone would raise their hand. We are all guilty of the sin of Ham. We have done that. It's in our nature. And God could have picked any number of sins to illustrate our fallenness, but he picks what appears to be to us a somewhat minor sin, right? But you see, folks, this sin has disastrous consequences. Look at Genesis 9.25. Noah wakes up, finds out what's happened. This is what he says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. Well, who's Canaan? Well, we have recorded for us that Ham had four sons, probably had more than that, but we only have recorded four. Cush, Mizram, Put, and Canaan, Genesis ten six. But you'll notice that Canaan is mentioned the most. Canaan will go on to produce a line of people that were evil and idol worshippers. And, of course, it was the Canaanites that settled into the promised land that Israel was to completely destroy when they were to take possession of it. The promise to Abraham. in the promised land were Canaanites. Now, I want you to understand something here. Why were the Israelites supposed to completely destroy the Canaanites? In other words, it was, we're talking genocide. By genocide, I mean they were to exterminate men, women, and children. They were to wipe them off the face of the earth. Well, why? It was the judgment of God that went back directly to the minor sin of Ham. And by the way, Did the Israelites obey God and wipe out all the Canaanites? No, they did not. A remnant of Canaanites remained, and what happened? That group of people eventually corrupted the Israelites, which led to that nation of Israel being sent into captivity under the judgment of God. All of this, all of those consequences of sin are traced back, to the relatively minor sin of Ham, and goes back to the fact that he got offended. Didn't deal with that in his heart. And it manifests itself in a heart of contempt, in a heart of disdain, in a heart of ridicule. I mean, doesn't it seem like a, a relatively minor sin to you? I mean, if you sit there and you take someone's life, you feel bad about it or you're guilty and you, and you, and you want to relieve yourself. If you hold something against somebody, if you a deal with it and it manifests itself in this way, do you ever really think that I need to confess that? You don't, do you? Or it takes a while. God wants us to know that there doesn't have to be some kind of severe heinousness connected to a sin to make it sin. The smallest iniquity can have disastrous repercussions. There is no minor sin. And the rest of Genesis, I mean, records the sins of humanity. There's pride, the Tower of Babel, come like God. We find abuse in Genesis 16. We find sexual morality, Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19. Treachery in Genesis 20. We are radically corrupt and totally depraved people and it hasn't stopped. It's well known as well that the early church father, St. Augustine, he ran with a sketchy crowd as a teen, and one night after the gang had finished playing sports in the streets of the neighborhood, their attention turned to a pear tree that was heavy with ripe fruit. Do you remember the story, anybody? The tree did not belong to any of their families, but it grew in a plot adjacent to that of Augustine's family. The boys did not find the pears tempting. They weren't hungry. Nevertheless, they wanted to steal them. They went to the base of the tree, shook down the ripe pears, and Augustine relates We carried off a huge load of pears, not to eat ourselves, but to dump out to the hogs after barely tasting some of them ourselves. Doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. It's like going into a store and it says, Do not touch. And we want to touch. He says, Such was my heart, having no inducement to evil but the evil itself. And then, writing in his mid forties, Augustine looked back on this theft, and was struck by the fact they didn't even want the pears. Yet he knew the pears were not his, and the natural law that he should not steal the property of others—that is what has pushed him to steal the pears. He took a pear merely to throw it to the pigs, not for the pigs' sake but for the sake of his own desire to disobey. He explains the act this way. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved my own undoing. I love my own undoing. So our problem, or our sin problem, is so serious. Folks, even when we do what is right, it falls short. Remember this? We've all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment; we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. That term, "filthy rags," it's quite strong. In Isaiah sixty-four six, the word "filthy" is a translation of the Hebrew word "ida," and it literally means the body fluids from a woman's menstrual cycle. So in other words, our most righteous acts are considered by God as a repugnant, soiled feminine hygiene project. And because of the depth of our corruption, we still cling to the lie that we can earn God's favor. Martin Luther said, the most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man is that somehow he can make himself good enough to deserve to live forever with an all-holy God. And again, if you were to die tonight and appear before God, And God were to ask you, why I should let you into my heaven? The number one answer, nine times out of ten, from everybody that I talk to is, I've lived a pretty good life. My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Therefore, God should let me in. And basically, I am good enough to earn the favor of God. All evidence to the contrary. Yeah. So, we have a radical consequence for that. Turn to Matthew 18. Verses twenty three through twenty-seven. Matthew eighteen, twenty-three through twenty-seven. Roger, can you do me a favor? Can you turn this fan on? It's like freezing outside. I am roasting up here for some reason. Yeah, it's the Holy Spirit, yes. It says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. How appropriate. We're talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment be made. So a servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now when Jesus uses the word servant in this story, he's referring to a, a provincial governor. I know how much we love our governors in this state. He served the king by ruling certain areas of his kingdom in his behalf, and their responsibility was to collect taxes, and to report the taxes to the king. You know where this story is going. The tax money, which was rightfully the king, was to be turned over to the king for the support of the entire kingdom. This provincial governor in the parable owed 10,000 talents. And this is where context will help. As a fascinating comparison, you might want to know that at the same period of time, the total revenue collected by the Roman government from Idumea and Judea and Samaria, the total revenue was 600 talents. Yet this man owed how many? 10,000 talents. So the total revenue collected from Galilee was 300 talents. Well, how did he owe the king such an astronomical uh, uh, amount? Well, the clear implication is that this provincial governor collected, embezzled, and, and wasted 10,000 talents. It's the largest numerical term in the Greek language, 10,000. So he owed a debt beyond an ability to even calculate. And this is what, of course, our sin. When we are brought before God, a holy God, mind you, we are faced with the fact that the sum of our sin is beyond comprehension. And what is the consequence of a debt that could never be paid? Well, verse 25 gives the answer. You must make some kind of payment for your debt. Therefore, we know that verse 25 is a picture of what place? And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all they had in payment to be made. That's a picture of hell. Hell is where you pay the penalty For your sin. Now, where else are men sent to pay for their sin? There's no other place. So people go to hell to pay for their sins, but keep in mind that all eternity in hell will not pay for all their sin. They just go there to pay what could be paid Sadly, when men who have spent eternities in hell, folks, they won't be better for their payment of their sin, will they? Because what is still in them? Sin, exactly. So they'll be no more better for their payment than they were when they began. So they're no more fit for heaven at the end of that time than when they were at the beginning. So when the offense of sin is just somewhat understood properly, you see that life in itself it really is an act of mercy. I mean, you could, be, could have been sent to hell as soon as you were born, because guess what? You're born in sin, and that's when you incurred that debt. So guess what? If sin is a problem, forgiveness is a provision. So let's talk about a radical provision. But what is, for, what is forgiveness? Well, here we go. Here are... Seven different definitions from the Bible of what sin is. It's God passing by our sins in many ways. Micah seven eighteen says, says, was a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. This is what it means to pass over sin, to take it away, to cover it, to blot it out, to forget it. That's why one of the great definitions of sin in in the human language comes from northern Alaska. There were some missionaries that were there. They were translating the Bible into that language of the Eskimos. They discovered there was no word in that language for forgiveness. So, after much patient listening, however, they discovered a word that means not being able to think about it anymore. Think about that for a moment. Not being able to think about it anymore. That word was used throughout the translation to represent forgiveness. Because what is God's promise to repentant sinners? I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. You know how it goes. I will remember no more, Jeremiah 31, 34. Look at verse 27 of Matthew 18. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, the king forgave in absolutely incomprehensible debt in a moment of compassion for this debtor you have to say this because it's so important but compassion only flows out of a soft heart filled with love and that this king appeared to love that servant as of course God loves all men and he considered the man's situation in which there was no remedy and it didn't change his love, folks. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, amen? His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Now, even though his kingdom had been robbed and he had been personally been sinned against in a way beyond anything you have ever dreamed of, you could have been sinned against. And some of you have been sinned against in great ways. Folks, I'm telling you right now, it doesn't compare to the offense And the stench of your sin before a holy God. He still forgave him. And look at the end of verse 27 forgave him the debt. The Greek says forgave him the loan. So, the loan, what does that mean, loan? Well, this king is so tender hearted, he considers it a loan instead of embezzled debt. Think about that for a moment. What a king! I mean, this servant didn't do anything to deserve such radical forgiveness. And how magnanimous, then, is the grace of God. Amen? But if my sin is forgiven, why do I regularly pray for the forgiveness of my sins? Right? Why is he telling me, forgive us our sins? Well, the answer lies in two kinds of forgiveness that you see right here. There's a judicial forgiveness That's when God views you as a judge and he declares you guilty. You've broken his laws, you're under judgment, condemnation. There's got to be a payment, there must be punishment. But then the judge says, on the basis of the death of my son Jesus Christ, he bore your punishment. He paid your debt. You're forgiven. That's the judicial act of God. It's full, complete, and positional. And by this judicial act, all of your sins, past, present, and future, they're completely and forever forgiven. And of course, when does that happen to somebody? Salvation, when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, exactly. God declares you righteous in his eyes. Again, that's why I put 2 Corinthians 5.21 up there. God made him, meaning Jesus Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Jesus Christ, we might become what? The very righteousness of God. Because it's not good enough, folks, to just to have my, my credit card wiped clean, the slate wiped clean, to wipe everyone off the face of the earth and to start over. No, no, no. I need righteousness credited to this new account. And that's exactly what God did in his son. But then there's relational forgiveness, And that views God not as a righteous judge, but as a loving father. Even though we've been judicially forgiven forever in God's eyes, the simple fact of the matter is, we still sin, right? And when we sin, what does that do? It hinders your relationship. And we lose the joyful intimacy. That's why we have 1 John 1 9. That if I confess my sins, God is faithful and just, He forgives me of all my sins. And purifies me from all unrighteousness. The confession there is not a one-time confession. It's in the con- present tense. It's a continual confession of sin. So when we confess our sin, our fellowship with God is restored, right? I should hear an amen out of that one. Okay. But in particular, joy is restored. Remember Psalm 51, 8 through 12, just listen to this. This is David, by the way, after the sin with Bathsheba, cut off from God then for about a year, He's praying God, seeking God, and he is dries a bone because of the sin that's hindered his relationship with God. He confesses sin, and this is what happens. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. It's referring to the, the uh, conviction of sin in his life. Create in me a pure heart. You see, he knows what the problem is. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's what you get back when you confess your sin to God, the joy. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And here's the point again. Judicial forgiveness takes care of forever the fact of salvation. Relational forgiveness takes care of the day-to-day joy of salvation. So again, the first part of this position, forgive us our debts, it's really just talking about one thing. It's confession, because we have a radical need. We are radically corrupted. We need a radical provision, and he's done that. But what is biblical confession? Because for some of us, it's simply I have the sin, I commit it, I confess it, I name it, and then what happens next? Do it again. Confess it, name it. What happens next? What is biblical confession? Well, listen to this story in the book of Ezra. Ezra has just learned, and mind you, is not guilty of this sin, by the way. He's just learned of the enormous sins of Israel that defiled the community as a whole. In particular, Israelite men had taken to marry pagan women from the nations around them. And such marriages were expressly forbidden by God. I.e., don't be unequally yoked. That's a serious matter in the eyes of God. Ezra comes to God weeping and confessing the sin of the people. And he says this in Ezra 9.6, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our deeds, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. This man is not guilty of this sin, folks. Yet he's overwhelmed by the sin of the nation. And while he's praying at the temple, the story goes on, a large group of people join him in crying and confessing their sin. The people fall up their weeping and confession, and here's the thing. They fall up all this weeping, all this confessing, by devising and executing a plan to send away the foreign, forbidden wives. Simply naming sin is not complete confession. Biblical confession always is accompanied by genuine remorse and repentance, a changed life. So we confess to restore the joy of fellowship with God. And there is nothing that so takes a joy out of life like unconfessed sin on the conscience. You know it. You've experienced it. I'm going to close with this story. It's from Dr. F.E. Marsh. He passed away years ago, but it's a true story that goes that on one occasion he was preaching on the importance of confession of sin. And wherever possible Restitution, when you wrong others. And this is how it goes. It says, At the close of the service, a young man, a member of the church, came up to him with a troubled countenance. Pastor, he explained, I have wronged another, and I'm ashamed to confess it or to try, put it, try to put it right. You see, I'm a boat builder. The man I work for is an unbeliever. I have talked to him often about his need of Christ and urged him to come and hear your preach but he scoffs and ridicules it all. Now I've been guilty of something that if I should acknowledge it to him will ruin my testimony forever. He then went on to say that some time ago he started to build a boat for himself in his own yard. In this work, copper nails are used because they don't rust in the water. These nails are quite expensive and the young man had been carrying On quantities of them to use on the job. He knew it was stealing, but he tried to ease his conscience by telling himself that the owner had so many he would never miss them. Besides, he was not being paid what he thought he deserved. But this sermon had brought him to the face of the fact that he was just a common thief. For whose dishonest actions there was no excuse. But, said he, I cannot go to my boss and tell him what I have done or offer to pay for those I have used and return the rest. If I do, he will think I am just a hypocrite. Here's the news, dude. You are a hypocrite. <laughs> Yet those copper nails are digging into my conscience and I know I shall never have peace until I put this matter right. For weeks the struggle went on. Then one night he came to Dr. Marsh and explained, Pastor, I've settled the issue of the copper nails, and my conscience is revealed at last. But what happened when you confessed to your employer what you had done? Asked the pastor. Oh, he answered. He looked queerly at me. And exclaimed, George, I always did think you were just a hypocrite, but now I begin to feel there's something to this Christianity after all. Any religion that would make a dishonest workman come back and confess that he'd been stealing copper nails and offer to settle for them must be worth having but the story doesn't end there dr marsh asked if he might use the story he was granted permission and sometime afterwards he told it in another city where he was preaching and the next day a lady came up and said doctor i've had copper nails on my conscience too well why show sure, you're not a boat builder are you no but i'm a book lover and I have stolen a number of books from a friend of mine who gets far more than I could ever afford. I decided last night I must get rid of the copper nails, so I took them all back to her today and confessed my sin. And I can't tell you how relieved I am. She forgave me, and God's forgiven me. I am so thankful the copper nails are not digging into my conscience anymore. But the story doesn't end there. Dr. Marsh testifies that I've told this story many times, and almost invariably, people have come to me afterwards telling of copper nails in one form or another they've had to get rid of. On one occasion, I told it at a high school chapel service. The next day, the principal saw me and said, As a result of that copper nail story, many stolen fountain pens and other items have been returned to their rightful owners. And that's the last of the story, but my office is open. I expect to see some stuff in there next week, okay, guys? <laughs> Particularly things that have keys to it, right? That you can turn and stuff like that. Anyways, let me close this wonderful thought from King David. Psalm three two three 3 through 5. He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Again, he sinned the adultery with Bathsheba killed her husband, married her. And for a year, he was just in agony with the Lord. It says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And so this week, I want you to confess your sins. That's what... It means when it says, forgive us our sins. Confess your sins. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a moment before we close with a song. And you're going to bow your heads, and we're going to close our eyes, and we're going to pray. And, and I'm going to offer, I'm going to pray for you. And if you want to come forward, and just while you're up here, you can privately confess any sin that God brings to your mind. Let's put into practice the very thing that we have been hearing. So I'm simply going to ask that the Holy Spirit would do the thing that he loves to do, which is convict us of our sin. And then you can come forward if you want and confess it to the Lord privately. Let me pray for you and for me. Holy Spirit, I invite you, knowing that you're already present in this place, to move and do your work of conviction and convict us of our sin. Remove those copper nails that are within our conscience, digging in, eating us inwardly, literally eating us to death. And in Jesus' name, I pray.